Our text this morning comes from Titus. We had a lot read for us this morning, and there's kind of two sections to it. The first section is what to do. Don't do this, do this, don't do that, do that. And the second half of what read is how, is the how part. How do we go about doing these certain things and not doing certain things? And that's what I'm going to talk about. So our text this morning is from Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Sabbath day. We thank you for this opportunity to come here and worship you, to lift our voices to you in praise, to hear your word, to draw close to you in prayer. We pray, Father, now that you open our hearts and minds and illuminate us. Dawn in our minds a deep and pure understanding of the goodness of your Son and the goodness of your grace. We thank you and we pray, Father, that you are with me. Give me words, Father. Give me words and give them ears. In Christ's name, amen. Are trials a part of your life? I love starting sermons this way. This is a common question. Are trials a part of your life? Is the presence of trial and temptation a standard of living? in your world? Is sin, habitual sin, or the temptation to sin a daily occurrence? And all the saints of God said, amen. (laughs) Now, you may have discerned a pattern to your stumbling and struggle. Perhaps ongoing issues in the same direction of anger, money, drink, telling the truth. What we're going to, to, to discuss today is the pattern, that that pattern is your training regimen. It's your personalized spiritual workout. In Titus 2.11, it says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God mentioned here that brings salvation for all people, obviously, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God so loved the world, he gave us his Son. We're very used to that glorious truth. God provides the way back to himself through the flesh of his only Son. Truly, this is unmerited favor which is what grace means. This is good news. This, God's grace is poured out on us in, in and through Jesus Christ. But the grace of God already, already overflowing in Christ goes further. St. Paul lists here a bunch of things that grace does. Grace has appeared, he said. Now, at first, that doesn't seem like such a big deal. But we need to look at what this word appear means. The word in Greek is where we get our English word epiphany, which means a striking and sudden revelation. This Greek word is most often and most frequently used in reference to the sun, the stars, or the moon, as in Acts 27.20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved, saved was at last abandoned. Luke also uses it metaphorically and theologically in Luke chapter 1, verse 78 through 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God, 
whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, to give light there, that word, to give light, is the same word translated appeared in Titus 2.11. To appear is to spread light. Now, this is very interesting. This is all predicated, of course, for St. Paul on John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So going back to Titus 2, Paul is telling us something else that God's grace does. The grace of God has dawned. It has lit up the world. The grace of God in a sudden burst of illumination has come onto the scene of human history, like the sun at the sunrise. The grace of God is the light we see by. Everything that follows in this section of Titus proceeds from the context of seeing by grace. Now, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, has this glorious quote that I love to use all the time. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Lewis means that he sees the light of Christianity, but he also sees or understands everything else because of that same light. We don't turn lights on for the light itself, do we? We never turn on lights to look at the light. We never light a candle to watch a candle. We turn lights on to see everything else but the light. In the wee hours of the morning, we don't turn the lights on so that we can gawk at them. In fact, if we gawk at them, it usually hurts. We want to find our slippers. We want to pull only one filter off of the pile. We want to see if our tie matches our shirt. This is why we turn the lights on, to see everything else. The salvation of God has dawned to bring redeeming light so that we can see our way through and around this world in the present age. It's so we can discern so that we can see sin and temptation for what they truly are and say no. So that we can see holiness and goodness in the proper way and say yes. We are given illumination, wisdom, understanding by the grace of God. Now, this isn't all. Grace is a very, very busy thing. Grace is all over the place. At the beginning of verse 12, it continues the thought of 11. Verse 12 starts with this word, training. Now, if you read too quickly, you you miss who or what is doing the training. The reality is the same grace that illuminates us, the same grace that saves us, is training us when to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness so that we can be zealous for good works. First, we have to grasp what St. Paul means that grace is training us. What does it mean that grace is training us? Titus 2.12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what grace is training us to do. The word train here is a very big word. It's a word some of us, if you have anything to do with classical education, hear a lot. It's the padea of the Lord. That's what the word train there is. Grace is padeaing us, which is a very funny thing to say in English. The word is used most famously in Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, bring up your children in the discipline and padea of the Lord. 
It's the responsibility of parents to bring up their children this way. But what does this word really mean? Padeia is not just education in the academic sense. It's enculturation. It's an all-consuming worldview training. It includes every area of life. Specifically, the padeia of the Lord, what that phrase means, is a view of the world in which the triune God is the Lord of heaven and earth and all of the necessary implications, theologically, practically, culturally, ethically, aesthetically, relationally, economically, I could go on and on. Every area of life, that's what it has to do with. Grace is training you in every area of life. So God is raising all his children in the padeia of himself. God is instructing us in how to live as his children in his world. The same grace that brings salvation to us also trains us as believers. That is some very, very good news. The good news just gets gooder and gooder. Our circumstances, the events of our lives, the trials and triumphs we all experience are all aimed at one thing, cultivating spiritual growth and godly character. And the one guiding the process is God, our Father. And unlike our children, who hopefully mature and depart from our homes, we never mature beyond our need for our loving Father and his gracious instruction. We send our children off to go plant colonies. We in this life never get beyond the need of our Father and his instruction. It goes, it's a need that we have until we go to see him in the next life. God is using the events and circumstances of your life to mold you into a mature Christian. And the means of training you is grace. God knows how to shape you and is graciously doing so. We tend to equate training with rigid rules and performance standards, don't we? That's what training is. Do 50 push-ups. Lift the 500 pounds. Type this many words in this many minutes. But God equates it with a firm, loving care for our souls. That's what training is to him. How is your soul doing? That's what he wants to know. God's grace trains us. It isn't harsh. It isn't cruel or arbitrary or impersonal like a workout video. Whatever is going on in your life is God's gracious way of training you in holiness. And how do you train for anything? How do we teach our kids to read? Do we give them the grapes of wrath? No, no. We start with phonograms. We work up to words and then sentences, and then Dr. Seuss, and then more Dr. Seuss, and then more Dr. Seuss. If you need to lift 100 pounds, you don't start with 100 pounds, right? I'm belaboring the point, but it's important. You don't start with 100 pounds. You start with as much weight as you can lift, and you work up from there to 100 pounds. That's what God is doing. In the Christian life, that's what God is doing. Where are you? He knows, and he knows what you can handle, and so he gives you that. They can lift 10 pounds, here's 10 pounds. They can handle this, mu- this many tears, here's this many tears. They can handle this much stress, here's this much stress. They can handle this much success, here's that much success. This is what God is doing. He's meeting you where you're at and increasing things incrementally to mature you, to train you up, to make you a full-grown <laughs> and capable athlete. God has brought you into a new life in Christ, which requires a different character, a different intellect, a different morality, and a different understanding of the world than you had without him. Now, as I've already said, we aren't more gracious than God, right? We meet our kids where they're at. That's how we train them. That's what God does. 
the God who gave us his only son on our behalf, he's that gracious. And so he doesn't come to us and say, do this now. Be like this now. You will, you will alter your personality to be just like me now. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. God is far more gracious than we are. You have deep-rooted fleshly desires that you can hardly understand at times. And God is uprooting them. You have very deep-seated fears and doubts that you often don't understand yourself. And God has to reach very deep to pluck them out. It's a very precise surgery that he's doing. Think of the scene from the Dawn Treader. You guys read that book by C.S. Lewis? We're going to get a lot of C.S. Lewis today. The Dawn Treader, in which Aslan has to scrape the dragon's skin off of Eustace. It's a great scene. Aslan has to tear down deep into Eustace to pull the skin off. And he has to do it seven times. And even then, after that difficulty, it's only, as he says, the beginning of Eustace's undragoning. It's a process. It's a process in which God is leading us step by step into a deeper love and a deeper holiness. As it says in Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, our promise and our hope is that the great shepherd and overseer of our souls equips us for everything needful to obey his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. We are the clay on the spinning wheel, shaped by the master artisan. This process is traditionally called sanctification, and it requires training, like a father training a child in the way they ought to go, through instruction, through discipline, through fellowship, rebuking, and demonstrating, demonstrating the right kind of behavior for the child to imitate. This is our promise. This is part of our inheritance. It's our hope. It's our great undeserved gift in Christ. I think you've all probably experienced what I'm talking about. An example in my own life is a few years ago, <laughs> my bank account kept overdrawing. Now, you guys have all been there, right? You've got the groceries, running the card, not working. Right? All those people behind you. This happened to me a couple of times. Um, I got really frustrated with God about this, actually. You know, aren't you the God that fed 5,000 with a loaf of bread? <laughs> but it kept happening. It kept happening. I refused to talk to God about it. I refused to pray about it. I wanted to show him, I'm a big boy now. I can handle this money. I got a better job that paid more money. I offloaded some debt. And yet, you know what kept happening? Using the card, overdrawing. Why is this happening? At one point, this problem became a major struggle. Not only a major struggle in my life, I am married. So you can just imagine and as time went on, I realized something that is, is and was difficult to admit. Buying stuff makes me feel better. It's taken me years to work up to saying that. Material goods and the power to buy them whenever I want satisfies me very deeply. My problem was an idle problem. My problem was a self-sufficiency problem. And through this, right, this took years, this process. God was gently raising his voice, graciously swatting me leading me through the process of failure as many times as I needed in order to get my attention. He could have spared my account, right? As I said, he's the God that fed 5,000 with one loaf. He could have spared, but that wasn't what I needed. I had a heart problem, and he loves me enough to take care of it. This is the grace that trains us. This is the process that I'm talking about. 
God knows and loves to give us true joy, acceptance, peace, and hope. But all of these things are found only in him. We need to see his hand guiding us and submit to his guidance. His grace has dawned so that we can see his hand. And his grace has saved us so we are free to follow him. And his grace is training us how to follow him. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. So take heart. What keeps happening to you? That's the question. What keeps happening to you? What repeated temptation? What ongoing fear? What recurring stumble? What habitual trouble are you in? You are being trained. You have to stumble and fall at times to see that you are, in fact, on the wrong path. God is training you in godliness. So listen, watch, pray, follow him, submit. And we learn to submit to God as God trains us when to say no and when to say yes. God is transforming us into images and imitators of him, to be like him. When we are converted, we still possess worldly desires, fleshly desires, real visceral needs. We need fellowship. We need intimacy. We need food and drink and money and professional pursuits and recreational pursuits. And in the midst of all of these realities are a lot of opportunities to act contrary to God. There are a lot of vices out there that can capture our hearts, right? At times, God is characterized also as being a big, unhappy, authoritarian in the sky who denies his people pleasure, joy, and happiness. We've all heard that before. People don't like Christianity because it puts you in a box. You can't do what you want. But this is overemphasizing and misapplying one half of the equation. God demands that we say no to some things, but only because he wants us to say yes to other things. He says in Deuteronomy, I set before you today life and death. He puts it out there. Here's life, here's death. Choose life, he says. God wants us to say no to those things that dishonor him, that harm others, things that are empty and fleeting, and he wants us to say yes to the things that honor him, that benefit others, that glorify him. God wants us to say no to drunkenness, but yes to happy hearts. God wants us to say no to hoarding and yes to charity, no to fear and yes to trust. The list goes on and on and on. God is not a father who desires self-denial and self-torture for the sake of self-denial and self-torture. He wants us to say no to worldly, transitory pleasures and yes to eternal joy. That's the game. That's what's at stake here. He wants us to say no to self-love and yes to neighbor love in the context of God love. God hates fornication, but he relishes an active marriage bed. God hates waste and gluttony and slavery to the stomach, but he loves a feast. We have to learn to see by the grace that's illuminated us what pleases him and what doesn't, what to say yes to and what to say no to. God is training us every day in what to say no to and what to say yes to. Now, am I saying that it's as easy as looking at a t temptation, looking it up and down and saying, nope. Ooh, look at that. Nope. Walking down the street. Nope. It's not really that easy, is it? To say no to this flesh right here, right now, in the moment of temptation, for the sake of a far-off judgment and a God you can't see presently, that's very hard. Haven't we all experienced that? That is very hard. 
Here's the flesh right now saying, feed me. But as we learn to say no, as we take that escape route, as we look to Christ, as we say no to the sin and yes to him, it shapes our desires. It molds us. It directs us and our desires toward their proper end. As we read God's word with his illuminating grace, we understand what pleases him and what displeases him. Learning to say no requires dependence. This is the key. As I said just a moment ago, when you take that exit route around the temptation, that's the key. But how do we get there? How do we do that? Standing up to temptation without the protection of God's grace is both dangerous and stupid. It's just stupid. I can handle this. I can handle this money, God. That was my problem. Choosing life is only done by appealing to life himself, Jesus Christ. You can only say no to sin if you have first said yes to Jesus. Hebrews four fifteen through 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has dawned. Grace floods and illuminates your world. See the temptations. Wake up. Don't be naive. See the temptations and failures for what they truly are. Look into Scripture and see how everyone who has gone at it alone has failed. Be weak. Be dependent. Turn to Christ. Here comes the temptation. Turn to Christ. Here's an opportunity to sin. Turn to Christ. Here is something you know your flesh starts to get a little warm. You're like, woo, that looks good. Turn to Christ. That's the way out every time. The more you turn from temptation to Christ, from no to yes, the more dependent on him you will become and the stronger in him you will grow. What comes your way gets bigger. Believe me, what comes your way gets bigger. I feel a little bit like I'm tricking you guys. The more you say no to the things you shouldn't and yes to the things you should, the bigger the opportunity to sin and fall gets. This is a maturing process. He gives us 15 pounds because he wants us to lift 20. He gives us 20 because he wants us to live 30. But the way out every single time, every single time, is turning to Christ. He's the yes and amen. He's the way out. And what's beautiful about it is we get to do the things he does. The more we can lift, the more he'll give us. The more we can lift, the more like him we'll become. This is a glorious process. Titus 2.12 says, very simply, that we are saying no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. We say no to lies and yes to truth. We say no to slander and yes to encouragement. We say no to immorality and yes to obedience. We say no to our own desires and yes to the will of God. He knows what we need. But it's hard to turn away from the things we personally enjoy to engage in the things other people need. That's why God is training us to do so every day. It's the kind of thing that's so hard, you have to do it a little bit every day. C.S. Lewis wrote, The negative idea of self-denial carries with it the suggestion that 
not primarily of securing good things for others, but of going without them ourselves, as if our abstinence and not their happiness was the important point. I do not think this is the Christian virtue of love. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. Follow Christ and imitate him. Truly, it is better to give than receive. It's not about don't touch, don't look, don't taste the forbidden pleasure. A man who never watches porn but doesn't nurture his wife in the word and prayer is still failing. If we make ethics merely about saying no, we can still fail. Right? You don't beat your kids, okay? When's the last time you actually hugged them or loved them? This is, this is the problem with ethics in, our, in the Christian church today. We think it's all about saying no. We leave out the other important half. It's not the absence of vice. It's the presence of God, godly virtues. Right? The modern man is all about self-denial as the cure for everything. Go on a diet. Don't eat sugar. Don't eat carbs. Don't eat gluten. Don't eat fat. It's very confusing. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Save up for that golden retirement. The whole modern view is predicated on denying yourself now so you can enjoy things later or longer. Right? This is the reaction to people who just live the eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, well, what we'll do is we'll deny ourselves a ton of stuff now, and later when we're old and can barely walk, sorry, right, then we'll have the great life. It'll be awesome. And then that seeps into Christianity. We act like Christianity is all about self-denial and slogging through and, oh, man, I never get to do anything fun. I can't wait to go to heaven. But that's not, that's not it at all. It's <laughs> not it at all. We're not meant to say no to our desires and leave it at that. That's the first step. We aren't saying no so we can have more glorious bodies and bigger bank accounts or because we serve an ethic of don't touch, don't taste, don't look. Say no to your desires and yes to God's desire for you, which is ultimately to love your neighbor as yourself. Avoid evil so you can do good. That's the idea. We're avoiding evil not to simply stop there, but that we can then turn and do good. And the point of all of this is that we go into the world and do that, good works. The point is that we're, all of this grace is leading to, all this um, self-denial leads to going into the world and doing good works. I'm going to read for one more time Titus 2, 12 through 14. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. That's the three words we're going to focus on. Zealous for good works. Good works don't produce salvation. Good works don't produce salvation. Never. It's impossible. Salvation produces good works. That's how it is. That's the equation. Salvation produces good works. You can't do the things that please God. You can't love your neighbor until you're saved. Once you're saved, that is what you're supposed to do. 
But as we've seen here, it's the grace that saved us. So what's going to give us the ability to do the things we're supposed to do? You are the hands and feet of God's body. He's working in this world, in this present age, here and now, through his body. And you are the hands and feet. You are the voice. You are his sinews and tendons, moving, holding the hammer, working to build his kingdom of sacrifice, service, and love in this world, in this age. You are all on your way to heaven. But salvation isn't a golden ticket. It's also not like a retirement plan, as I've said before. If you look at verse 14, we're going to focus on these last three words. Part of our purity, our cleansing, our sanctification is a renewal of appetites, a renewal of desires, and a renewal of outlook. God doesn't just want laborers. He wants zealous laborers, joy-filled laborers, laborers who love to labor. This is a really hard part. This is the part I struggle with. (laughs) Oh, you want me to labor? Okay, fine. He wants zealous laborers, joyful laborers. We are not supposed to just follow Jesus mumbling. We're supposed to run after him with all of our strength. It's not about you. It's not about the distant future. It's in the present age, it says in verse 12, here and now you are redeemed and are being trained to be zealous for good works. It's about this world, this place, this day, this city, your family, your home, your job, your life now. That's what it's about. The works that Paul calls good are those works that fulfill God's commands and imitate his character. Works that are loving, merciful, selfless, humble, and focused on the good of others. This requires obeying God zealously in your role as friend, neighbor, spouse, child, citizen, etc. Are you helping mom bring in the groceries on your own free, cheerful will? Are you speaking well of others? Are you treating even your unbelievers and enemies as image bearers? Are you diligent in your school and vocational work, or are you grumbling? Are you cutting corners? Are you seizing the opportunities that come to you to bring Christ into your workplace? Does your wife need assistance? And though you're tired from your long day, are you running to help her? Finish the dinner, take care of the kids, clean the bathroom, God forbid. Are you seizing every opportunity to bring Christ into your home? To say yes to self-control and godliness in general is to take dominion of yourself and your environment in the name of Jesus Christ. It's taking dominion of this right here. The more we deal with our sin and temptation by cleaning house here and our heart, the freer we are to turn toward others and help them. The more we take the log out of our own eye, the more qualified we are to deal with everybody else's splinters. The more we learn to lift, the more we can help others lift what they have. That's the point. The more you take to your training, the better equipped you will be to glorify God and love your neighbor. Don't resist your training. The more you turn to Christ, dying to yourself and loving your wife as Christ loved the church, the more of a counselor you'll be to your brothers. The more a mother turns to Christ in dependence and need, the more hope she'll be giving to her sisters and her daughters. When you take dominion of your finances, exercising dependent obedience to God, the more you'll be able to give to the mission of the church and to the needy. God teaches us to say no to ourselves so that when the time comes, we can say yes to those who are in need.
That's the ball game. That's what the training is all about. Say no to yourself so that you can say yes to those in need. The more of life you learn to bear in your weakness, depending on Christ, the sturdier you will be to carry others. This might sound like a great burden, but it's actually an unburdening. It may sound too difficult, but all this obeying, all of this zeal, all of this redemption and renewal and training flow from what? How did we start? Titus 2.11, grace. The grace of God has appeared. Grace has appeared to save us. We couldn't save ourselves. Grace is training us. We couldn't train ourselves. Grace has dawned for those who sit in darkness. Grace. God is orchestrating exactly the circumstances you need to learn how to trust him, how to turn to him in your weakness, if you have the humility to be weak. God has provided his word. Deuteronomy says the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever. We have it in our hands every day. God has graciously provided access to his throne by Jesus, and by his spirit we can go to him and ask him for whatever we require. Admit you have neither the inclination nor the strength in yourself to do the very things you need to be shaped and molded into redeemed zealots of good works. Admit it. You don't have what it takes. Just because salvation has come to you doesn't mean you're extra special in yourself. You don't have what it takes in yourself. You have to turn outside of yourself. You have to go to the one who poured the grace out on us in the beginning. Weakness is the path to true strength. To be a prayer warrior, to understand the deep mysteries of God and love others as Christ has loved you requires a complete surrender to Christ and to admit that you can't do it alone. That's the humility that leads to unbelievable strength. And we need to get on our knees in the morning and admit it. And tomorrow morning we need to get on our knees and we need to admit it. We can't do it ourselves. And then Wednesday we'll get on our knees and we'll admit it again. And every day when you turn to Christ, he, you will find he is already there. And his grace will overwhelm you. It will train you. It's saved you. It's illuminated the world. You will be able to go out of your door and do the things that please him, that make you like him. Don't ask God to change your circumstances. Don't start there. Don't start there. The first thing we need to get on our knees and ask is that God would change us. That he would show us what's wrong in here. Say yes to Christ. Say yes to grace. Say yes to your training. Be humble and weak, and you will grow in godliness to be zealots of good works and glorify God in heaven. And amen.